Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Gershon. And I am Andy Wood. That was the second attempt at an intro and it went a lot Man. better. It's uh, This is a 40 minute delay caused by, who knows, traffic, LA. This is the worst LA traffic I've ever been in and I'm trying not to be in a bad mood, but it's uh, in eight and a half years, I've never spent an hour and 10 minutes going three miles. Well, right? ha- I heard it was Andrea Bocelli's fault. I blame Andrea Bocelli. Yeah. Is that who was at the Hollywood Bowl? He's doing three nights. Why would tonight... If you're doing three nights of shows at the Bowl, why would any one of those nights cause a an historic traffic event? Here's my guess. He's blind. Oh, he is? I'm not kidding. I didn't know that. Isn't he? Am oh, I, yeah. Yeah. That, I, 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 I suddenly had that. a horrifying... Okay. Hor- so may, maybe there's... I guess I deserve this. Maybe there's a lot of extra blind people... <laughs> On the maybe roads ha- tonight. Maybe he has a big blind following. <laughs> Which is great... There's dogs. Mm-hmm. There's there's all sorts. Well, I have to rethink my whole. I mean, like as I was driving, I was just thinking, if I ever see Andre Bocelli in a bar, you better watch his back because I'm just going to kick him straight in the nuts. But after, now you know he would be unable to watch, watch his, back, his back, and it would be yeah, it's too much to ask him to watch his back. I, I if, still might kick him in the nuts because this yeah. is yeah, it will look bad. Oh. If if we were if we were were a man with. 2020 vision and you went up out of nowhere and kicked him in the nuts it's fine no one totally would fine. no one would question it yeah but if it was someone who is sight impaired you might you might face some criticism i i thought that everybody was just at like peak road rage today um this lift driver passed me i was on a residential road with with speed bumps and i was going the, the speed limit and there was a car I was an oncoming car it's two-lane road and this lift driver still decided to pass me and almost have a head-on collision <laughs> And now I realize he's probably blind. He's probably an Andrew Bocelli fan rushing to the show, and I shouldn't have rushed to judgment. You were, uh, yeah. By the way, I should I should make it clear that I think his music can also be in- enjoyed by some fully sighted people. I mean, okay, but fully sighted bad drivers. Yeah. It's impaired. Yeah, it's in some way impaired. <laughs> we have a guest. We do. We How do. can Let's we stay mad it. when we have a guest? I know, yes. And he was very patient for... Putting yeah. up with the lateness, so thank you for that. Not only is our guest patient, not only is he a scientist, but he's also the husband of our very recent comedian guest. Yes, the husband of Michelle Balloon. Who mentioned that her husband is a scientist, and then afterwards went, you know, we're going to be in town in a couple of weeks, and you could nap him for the podcast, and gosh darn we did. This is Dr. Alex Platt. Why, hello. How's it going? I'm doing all right. How have you been? I'm being pretty good, thanks. It's nice to actually meet you. I've heard about you. Michelle's mentioned you both on and off mic. Yeah, it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. You're a calming presence in these trying times. Alex, let's get let's get right into it because because I'm terrible at the witty banter part. No, you're great at the witty banter. You're great at both the witty banter and the self-deprecation. Fair enough. You nailed it. So, Alex, what what breed of scientist are you? What is it you do? I'm a biologist. And uh, more specifically, I'm a population geneticist, so I spend a lot of time uh, worrying about how people, or not people, um, are related to each other, or aren't related to each other. So sort of like a Mori Povich style? Uh, it gets there occasionally, but usually on a much broader scale. Okay, so you don't have anyone dancing when they find out they're not the father oh, in your no. line of work. Okay, so population geneticist, um, I'm assuming this is looking at larger sets of so if you had to explain this to a third grader what what is your day-to-day day-to-day um i've been working in human populations a lot recently mm-hmm. um not all that i do but um and uh it has to do with how did different groups of people get to where they are and who were their ancestors okay um, which ancestors are shared between which groups of people and when did that happen now this a story that i don't think we've actually done in the podcast but has been sent in by listeners isn't there like a recent discovery that we may not all be as directly descended from africa as we thought is that is that something on your radar um i i don't know the specific study you're talking about uh it is true that we have some uh I know mean, all humans go back to Africa if you go far enough. Okay. Right? And many humans are still in Africa. So I've heard that there are um, some people there. 
it's I, I got to say it's something that geneticists white geneticists uh, forget about um, quite often <laughs> and you will hear uh, people at conferences say well you know when we left Africa um, <laughs> and they're speaking broadly but uh, they, they, that's a very interesting you're right that's a very interesting point it implies it's just like a uh, <laughs> a desolate <laughs> right and uh, you know in the actual fact of it is really sort of the other way around right I mean, humanity is an African species, mm. um, and genetically, most of humanity is still in Africa, right? Uh, genetic diversity within Africa is sort of far larger than um, the rest of the world combined. This is something that I read an article fairly. Re- I didn't. I I hadn't realized quite how remarkable it is, and it the article was talking about it was sort of debunking the concept of race as a as a general concept, just in terms of like. Uh, but as in terms of it being simple categories, but it was pointing out how two people from different parts of Africa are so much more genetically diverse than people than white people anywhere, and uh, like white people and Asian people even, and exactly, and even white people in some parts of Africa. There, is- right. Um, so, right. So humans are an African species, mm-hmm. um, and that. Some humans at some point left Africa is uh, is genetically almost a footnote. Um, now there are uh, some interesting ancestors of those of us who are not African or of recent We're not African currently descent, in Africa um, who uh, whose um, African roots are much older. So. Um, the earliest humans to leave Africa are not our direct ancestors. Um, they are ancestors of people we know as Neanderthals, uh, Denisovans, uh, Florensis, and a handful of other guys who don't have uh, single names. Um, and those, um, those early humans uh, aren't our direct ancestors. But we did get some genetic material from them. Mostly we're descended from uh, anatomically modern humans, another group of people who has a terrible name, Mm -hmm. um, who originated after that within Africa and some of whom subsequently left and um, sort of gave rise to those of us who are not of recent uh, African origin. Um, But they... When they left Africa, uh, sort of up into Eurasia, they didn't find an empty continent, right? They found a continent that was already full of these uh, early humans. So the earliest people to leave Africa, by and large, ended up being sort of dead ends of our ancestral tree? Right. By and large, but not entirely. Okay, and some of them were already in Europe when the anatomically modern humans left Africa and then interbreeded with them. Exactly. Okay. Right, so most of our ancestors, or most of our ancestry, comes from these anatomically modern humans who left later. Um, But not all of it. Mm -hmm. And some of it goes back through these other peoples uh, who left much earlier. Um, And these are people who... uh, Diverged from the lineage that gave rise to the anatomically modern humans uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, okay. Not just um, tens of thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Which is, what's the sort of definition of the starting point for what we consider hum- for, hum- for modern humans? Um, you know, it's tough uh, to answer that directly, um, partly because... In addition to geneticists often forgetting that um, much of humanity is not European or Asian, um, the actual genetic, uh, sort of genetic archaeology within Africa is uh, very poorly represented in the scientific literature. Um, So... We don't know a lot about the diver- the ancient diversity within Africa. 
uh, we don't know it nearly as well as we understand the ancient diversity outside of Africa. So we are very good at describing these ancient peoples of Eurasia, where they were moving, who they were interacting with, mm -hmm. um, some of the stuff they were doing, um, and who ended up being sort of a descendant of them, in part descended from them. We know this much more sketchily for within Africa. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, right? Yeah. It's, um, a lot of it is people haven't looked as much. Um, the resources haven't been devoted to it. Uh, it's partly the data aren't as good. Um, the fossils within Africa, um, the, so the bones get preserved just fine. DNA um, has not been preserved as well. These aren't... That's well, unique to Africa? Well, you know, we've done such fantastic work with um, the ancient DNA of Neanderthals and Denisovans. These are uh, individuals who were frozen in Siberian caves. Oh, uh, okay. If you don't have a Siberian cave, uh, DNA degrades much faster. Mm -hmm. um, people are now... Uh, do, getting much more progress into uh, recovering um, DNA that would otherwise be degraded. Um, things like uh, they found that DNA in the pineal bone in the ear uh, seems to get preserved awfully well. It's, in any kind of climate? Yeah, that it's much better protected than the sort of DNA and other bones that we'd been looking at. So they, they are finding ways of extracting this DNA, and they've done uh, a fantastic job sort of expanding the kind of data we can look at. Still, the resources really haven't gone into Africa nearly as much as they've gone into the rest of the world. Um, so that's part of why we understand it less well. Um, there's probably another component to it, uh, though, that... Um, our models of how we even talk about peoples and populations and groups moving around works a lot better when there aren't that many groups mm. and they're kind of isolated from each other. So if there's a half dozen sort of small self-contained groups wandering around Eurasia, we can sort of track them. Right. And it, also if they... If they only sort of crossed over into Eurasia in a few discrete on a few discrete occasions, as well, they they'd all have more common genetic ancestry anyway, right? Or... Right. So they're more distinct. Right. Um, so it's easier to talk about them. It's easier to identify them. Um, but if you're talking about a continent that is sort of full of humans, all sorts of humans. Yeah. Um, and they're all related to each other in very complicated ways. Um, it's hard to... Over even, over tens of thousands of years. Tens, even hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Um, that uh, the language to talk about ancestry breaks down. The models we use to analyze ancestry um, don't work so well. Um, so it's... It's harder to pose the question properly. It's harder to answer the questions. Um, and so we've still got an awful lot of a black box in terms of the ancient peoples of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a much better job at describing what happened to the people who left. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying it's not purely just selection bias, even if you did dedicate the same dollars and people resources to archaeology in Africa, it would be a messy thing to try to piece apart. Right. It's actually a harder question. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a harder problem. Um, and so there, it, it, it's not entirely unreasonable to say, well, look, let's figure out the stuff we can figure out first um, and then see exactly what it is we need to know mm -hmm. um, about other parts and what's what are the new data we need to collect? What are the new models we need to ask the questions that are appropriate for those data? Um, and then how do we deal with it? And what do we want to know? Yeah. Um, these well, are these are things that um, sort of still need to be developed. Right. What is it that you, I mean, if you had to answer the big question, what is it that you want to know about humans and their and their genes? Like, or what is the end goal? If you could have all the information, what would you like to do with it? 
or, or end goals? Or what, what are the big questions that are currently exciting geneticists or people in your field? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, I, I see of it, there's sort of two directions, right? There's the um, stuff asking about modern humans and their uh, sort of immediate environments and their futures. And there's sort of the retrospective element of uh, how did we get to this point? Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those are interesting for fairly different reasons, right? Um, one is um, in sort of who are we? Um, is like what happened to bring us to be where we are um, doing the things we're doing? Um, why does humanity look the way it does? Mm-hmm. Um, the other is uh, how do we make things better? Yeah. Right. We, That's what I would think is is the goal of a person going into this kind of field. Right? You, well, you know, both of those are very, they're, they attract different kinds of people. Yeah. Right. Um, that uh, in some ways, one of them feels more like, uh, like a, a branch of the humanities. Mm-hmm. Right. It's highly quantitative. It's a question about, um, it, it, it's a question about sort of society and people. Um, and it's done... Um, it's done with a sense of um, sort of knowing who we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the other is a very, it's a more, uh, let's say, clinical uh, approach. Um, what, what can we do about it? Yeah. Um, how, how do we want to, how do we want to treat people and I mean treat both as society and as um, sort of clinical practice. Um, what are we going to do? How do we make people healthier? How do we make society healthier? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that has to do with what are these genes doing? Um, why, why are these genes in the people they are? Are they helping? Are they hurting? Did they used to help and now they hurt? Um, are they going to hurt in the near future? Um, do um are they doing what we want them to do mm-hmm. um you know we've we're not sort of mercy at the mercy of our genes um we have a lot of the ability to sort of uh intervene um and do things to ourselves um to make our lives better um so what are we going to do right can i ask a really basic question but one that I've I've never fully satisfied myself that I've got fixed in my head. Um, this is okay. When people say apes and humans or monkeys and humans or whatever, or the, these two animals and us share ninety whatever percent of the DNA. Sure. And then they'll say things like, uh, "You and your dad share fifty percent of the genetic information," or "You and you and a half sibling share this percentage." And obviously, those two are contradictory. Or at least they're not saying the same thing in the same way. They're not referring to the same thing. Oh, right. They sure aren't. So what is what is referring to what and what's referring to the other and what do they mean exactly by that? Right. Because so, obviously you can't share... You can't have less genetic information in common with your half-sibling than you do with a bonobo. Right. So um, the, uh, the more uh, rigorous um, way of talking about how you're related to your immediate family would be has to do with so uh you literally received half of your genetic information from your mother and you received half of it from your father right right so um you right one of every chromosome came from your mother the other of every chromosome came from your father um and they in turn when they were passing on this information were giving you sort of some of one of their chromosomes, some of the other. So uh, the half that you got from your mother is half inherited from your maternal grandfather and half from your maternal grandmother. Mm -hmm. The other half of your genome that you got from your father is half from your paternal grandfather, half from your paternal grandmother. Uh, So if you follow these halves back of literally where your genetic material came from. These are sort of copies of molecules that were shared um, from these uh, ancestors. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
now the thing is you're um so as you go back generation by generation uh you had two parents um almost certainly um you had at most four grandparents right but um while there were sort of four people involved in making your two parents they each had two parents those don't have to be independent people right so your paternal grandfather and your maternal grandfather could be the same person and you wouldn't have been that genetically damaged from that right happening and f- and if you go far enough generations back that almost certainly is the case because there right so you there have been few there were fewer people 400 years in the past than there are today and yet if you keep kind of going back in the family tree that way you're doing facts you're doing powers of two it can't right there must be intermingling and and crossing of those people must overlap with each other right so the point is while you're receiving sort of half your genetic material half 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 um those aren't unrelated people you're receiving half 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 from right so these halves are get to be very similar halves right so if everybody starts off with um, a genome that is descended from a genetic Eve, there is no such person. But if there were only one person who began the species, right? Um, yes, you can break it up half, half, half mm-hmm. for all of your immediate family. Um, but all of those halves are going to wind their way back to one person, right? So... Well, and, and you're using a metaphor for it, but like, how big of a this person being a group of people? Like, how big might that group be if you were sort of trying to? Um, I, my understanding is, um, we're for humans, we're talking um, a couple hundred. Wow. Um, so it it is a metaphor, and um, this is a couple hundred has to do with. You know, some of them contributed a larger proportion, some of them not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's probably a long tail in there. And of, are we are they talking about a couple of hundred that live together, or are you talk, or would they be in separate patches and then they'd be commingling between them as well? I'm saying that uh, the number of distinct ancestors, um, if you go back, uh, that we all share, yeah, um, is going to be a, bit, a, couple a couple hundred. hundred. Yeah, okay. Not, not that at any one point in time there were only two hundred people who left descendants, um, but that but those other branches died out over time, and I, right, and that you can sort of uh, describe all of humanity's genetic material something like a couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we know that, by the way? Um, we know this um mostly we did the math okay we said look we know how many people have been alive uh we know how um genetic material gets lost um as people as genetic material does not get passed down Mm -hmm. um and we think that it sort of breaks down into chunks of about this size um and that at any point in time you can represent any person as a mosaic of something like a couple hundred ancestors Mm -hmm. okay so sorry to get you back on track oh but i did want to just um offer a contrast so um we grow a lot of soybeans in this country okay right billions and billions of soybeans every year um there's about 30 ancestral soybeans to all of uh, all of non-Asia, anyway, mm-hmm. um, that were brought over a hundred years ago. No uh, way. Yeah, and they've just been crossed and propagated. Um, so genetically, we've got sort of a couple hundred ancestors giving rise to an effective population. We'd say of uh, historically ten thousand uh, non-African humans um you know we, there are many more of us now and that has increased our genetic diversity considerably mm-hmm. uh in the short recent history um and so we may be talking uh genetically we've got sort of a few million humans 
Um, but uh, right, the kind of seven billion or eight billion humans represented by a few million at most genetically um, contrasts with many, many, many billions of soybeans. Um, there's really thirty soybeans in this country. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, when you when I found out I think recently, but that there that every avocado you've had. Uh, pretty much descends from like one tree one tree oh and all bananas are genetically identical really yeah all I, bananas are clones of each other and we're on something like our fifth banana oh yeah because i thought i'd heard that like in the last hundred years bananas have changed flavor a lot and yeah because they're all clones that. every so often a blight just and there's a new one that could really screw us up and that that every so often a blight just wipes out the current version the, of bananas. that current version of bananas and they have to be they're all right that's Move on to the next banana. Exactly. And there's something like 14 cows in this country. Um, <laughs> that one I didn't know at all. Yeah, that they... Right, they... Uh, you have a really good bull. You can spread that semen pretty far. Um, oh, and well, you don't have to tell us that. <laughs> so there's no reason to be breeding inferior bulls. And they say, well, these ones were good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's... There, there is uh, dozens of cows out there, and there's no problem with uh, the viability or, or health of those coming from a narrow gene pool. Like, it's in general, is it not the case that it's better to have your parents be as genetically dissimilar as possible for your own well-being, or is that not is that a mis misconception? So, there's two aspects to that. Um, in terms of uh, generally avoiding inbreeding. Right, so there's lots of deleterious recessive alleles out there. Um, okay, where, you don't have to tell me. So, um, <laughs> sorry. You know, you can since you've got two copies of every gene. Both copies don't really have to work, right? I didn't know that. Um, for the most part, you can get away with just one. Uh, the, the Meaning... other one, the other one has to be there. By the way, I don't know if this is being picked up in the mic, but the dog upstairs is really going at it. Yeah, today's a different dog day. I think he, and he's got Andrew Bocelli on, on the brain. In case, in case you're listening to this and like, we're about to be attacked by some kind of... Mo it sounds a bit horror filmy. If you're yeah. listening in headphones, it might be a little... I can't tell if it's also because of the quality of the Bose headphones that we're listening to. Thank you again, Bose, for sending these. Thank you, uh, Bose. The listeners might not end up hearing that. We'll see. Once I do some compression stuff. But anyway, so... Uh, so the, uh, we only need one copy of a good gene. For, for the most part, if you've got one copy doing the right thing, um, the other one doesn't have to do so much heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to have lots of defective copies floating around in the population. As long as they don't get too common, um, then you're unlikely to get both bad copies if you're drawing oh. randomly from the population. If you're not drawing randomly from the population because your parents are closely related, um, then your odds of getting two bad copies goes way up. Um, by and large, uh, as long as you're not talking about uh, first cousins or closer, mm -hmm. it's not a big deal. I thought I'd heard even first cousins genetically aren't that prone to... Right. Genetic... Not, not encouraging. I'm not trying to tell the future Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis's to... Uh marry their 13-year-old cousins, but... Uh, right. So, first cousin, you do notice um, there is sort of a statistically noticeable um, increase in genetic disease. Uh, beyond that, there really isn't. Mm -hmm. And and even at the level of first cousin, right, um, it's not a huge risk. Uh, there is another component to wanting uh, unrelated or distantly related parents, Um and that's the immune system, right? The immune system has this really hard job of needing to be able to recognize yourself and not attack it and recognize everything else in the world and go after it. And it does that um, with a really complicated system of piecing together um, different combinations of different genes presenting things that can represent yourself uh, that you don't want other pathogens to be able to mimic. 
Right. If you get a uh, a virus or a bacteria that can pretend to be you, and and sort of put on its outsides these little markers that your cells have that say, "Don't attack me. I'm supposed to be here." Uh, that virus, that bacterium, would uh, be a real problem. I didn't know that was a thing that happened. So that that's how immune systems work, or or how things try to thwart immune systems. Yeah, they'll try anything. Um, or they will have evolved accidentally to try these things, right? Um, and and sometimes they even yeah, you're right they they've evolved to um, to do things like this, right? They'll grab pieces of your cells. They will um, they they um, right they mimic things in their environments. Um, there's sort of all sorts of uh, strategies for evading immune systems that have come about, and if they were and to the extent that they are effective, you know, we're in trouble. So we have evolved this immune system that is uh, really great at sort of coming up with new combinations of things to stick on your cell uh, to recognize you as uniquely you. Um, and these things work a little better uh, if you have more distantly related parents um, giving you sort of a broader repertoire of little bits to stick on your genes as sort of identifying self and recognizing other. So if your parents or siblings, you're sort of like you, the representation of you is a, is a stick figure versus a, a, a Rembrandt painting of you or something or to, to, to draw with broad strokes. Yeah. Or a shorter combination to your combination lock. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So getting back to what you were saying well, led us down this path originally. So we all have these these two parents, four grandparents, but then leading to a series of common ancestors. So that is the shared pool that what is human genetic material is drawn from. Right. So then you say, okay, um, broadly speaking, right, you go through and you line up the DNA of uh, any two people, Um any two non-African people. I don't know the um, the numbers for within Africa. I'm part of the problem here. <laughs> um, any two people, you find that uh, you're lining up their, their DNA, the bases, all the A's, C's, G's, and T's, and if you're reading it off, um, okay, this base will be the same between both people, and this next one will be the same between both those people, and the next one, it's it's the same letter, it's the same letter. Um, about once every thousand bases, you'll say, oh, there's a difference. This guy's got an A, this person's got a C, or um, whatever. Um, about one in a thousand uh, differences. If you did the same thing, you line up um, a random human and a random chimpanzee, um, right? you wouldn't get that far before finding a difference. You'd find a difference every uh, 40, 50 bases. Um, and that's where that number comes in. Okay. Um, so then w when you were saying the 50% shared with your half sibling or with your parent, that's saying 50% of the things that already separate us from one another, not 50% of the whole. It's entirely reasonable to frame it that way. Yes. Um, right. So almost all the DNA is the same. Um, but literally half of your genome was a copy off the same molecule uh, as your sibling, right? Um, so if you lined if you lined my DNA and your DNA next to each other, ninety nine point nine something nine something would of it would be identical. The, the A's, uh, C's, whatever G's, T's would be in the same place. Correct. And with and then that that point zero whatever percent of the differences, that is then the variance amongst different humans. And if you compared that little pool of differing letters between me and you it'd be far more varied than between me and my either of my parents right so um and it's um but it's not just a sort of random subset so um right if you compared your genome to your parents right you'd find that one chromosome the entire chromosome matches the parent you're uh, uh comparing to and the other one um, is essentially unrelated, right? It'll be that one in a thousand difference. Okay, so 
And if you line yourself up with a sibling, right, you'll find a long stretch where they're identical, right? This is where you both inherited this chromosome from the same parent um, or the same grandparent. So actually, there are only, hang on, how many, I'm now blanking even on how many chromosomes. 23, right? Yes. So there are only, I mean, this is a huge number, but there are two to the 23 possible children that, oh no, times by two, because that each parent could have. Two, two to the 23rd genetically distinct children they could give rise to? Um, it's it's more than that. Uh, I mean, that's a plenty big number, right? I mean... Yeah, that is... Uh, uh, when I was thinking that, I was like, oh, how come more kids don't look this... And then I just worked it out. I was like, oh, that is... Uh, then we're getting into sort of more than there are... Right, you know, but... Sand, it, grains of sand on the beach and yeah, that kind of... Right, but, it, but it's actually... A, it, or it, atoms it, in... The- it, it, so that is a plenty big number, but it's um, the number of kids... Uh, a couple can have genetically distinct children is is uh, is larger because um, when you pass down a chromosome, right? So you inherit a whole chromosome from a parent, right? But it's not a whole one of their chromosomes, right? So they've got two chromosomes. They don't pick one of those and give it to you. They take their two chromosomes, um, they twist them up, and they um, form a gamete out of uh, a chunk of one chromosome and then a chunk of the other version and then maybe a chunk of the first version again. This is uh, all, within, all within one parent, not once they combine? Or sorry. Right. This is a single parent making a gamete, an egg okay. or sperm. Oh, that's right. I am so ignorant when it comes to basic genetics. That's, this here. is really yeah. interesting. <laughs> okay, so that, that does make sense. So it, otherwise it would be the case that each child would have, say for example, your second chromosome would be an exact copy of your paternal grandmothers or whatever and that is that isn't the case and that isn't the case right when you're passing it's mixed and matched between both your parents from both who've inherited a chromosome from each of their parents and then it's the mix and match of those two that becomes the one chromosome that they hand to you right so you've got one chromosome that is a mosaic of your paternal grandparents and you've got one chromosome that's a mosaic of your whatever the one i didn't just maternal grandparents thank you um so you do get patchwork chromosomes um their grandparent patchworks, not parent patchworks. Okay. So actually, given that there is a patchwork, there are even more possible children that two parents can have by by a high by a magnitude by a high factor. Right. We're talking, yeah, two two to the yeah. Okay. Right. So you get uh, one or two crossovers per chromosome. Those crossovers um, could happen in many different places along the chromosome. Um, so. Yes, you get... You so get, now you're probably talking about like 10 to the 50 or more possible children that... Right, it's or it's even larger than that, though some of those aren't super different from each other. Right. Um, okay, it crossed over here and not just a little farther down. Um, those are still mostly the same. And again, m- large amounts of this genetic information is identical still, which is why children do end up... R- siblings end up looking largely like each other often right um but not always exactly yeah so you you do inherit a lot of the same variants that your parents have um and and then you go on to grow up in your parents household um doing the things your parents do right um, because and dress the same and all that fun stuff that okay, yes, of course, because that's another huge difference to how people turn out. Obviously, is the the nurture is exactly the other part of the equation, right? And it doesn't have to be even sort of direct within your household nurture, right? It's your larger environment. If you grow up in the same place, exposed to the same things, um, you turn out similarly. Um, and yeah, I can I can spot wherever I am in the world, I can spot an American and I can spot a Brit. <laughs> and then, that is not genetic. That's that's the red hat that says make America. That is cultural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which will be a Brit wearing it ironically in Paris, obviously. <laughs> right. But this does make um, doing a lot of genetic inference uh, difficult. Um, if you want to find, uh, you say, okay, look, I want to find the genetic basis of um, using chopsticks, 
<laughs> right? You could say, okay, um, I, I find a whole bunch of people who use chopsticks, a whole bunch of people who don't use chopsticks. I want to find all the places where the people who use chopsticks tend to have one allele. The people who don't, you have, tend not to use chopsticks have a different allele. Um, and then I go, oh my goodness, it's the whole genome, right? It's all over the place that there's almost no allele you can look at that doesn't have frequency differences between these groups has nothing to do with chopstick use. It's that you've got um, genetically uh, identifiable population differences that mm -hmm. are correlated with chopstick use. Um, and so, right, this is a trivial example where, yes, there is nothing, there's no true answer to find, um, and you find a lot of answers. Uh, it gets worse when you are pretty sure there is a genetic answer to find, and you're trying to decide um, look, what is a genetic difference um, that gives some people dark skin and some people pale skin? And you say, well, if I just take a bunch of people with dark skin and a bunch of people with pale skin and I look for the places where the allele frequencies are different, again, you find the whole genome, right? <clears throat> um, right. There's a, there is a sort of distinct genetic population of pale-skinned people, and they're sort of identifiable anywhere you look in the genome just because they've been distinct for 10,000-some uh, years. Um, but clearly, while there's probably an answer somewhere in there that says this is why pale people are pale, you can't tell the difference between sort of the handful of right answers and everything else that shows up that you know is wrong this is i'm sketchily remembering the article that i read a couple of weeks ago that was about the impossibility of describing race scientifically and how sort of even the concept of race is fairly junk science but it was it was talking about not and i'm sure you can be far more accurate than i can with my haste with my vague memory but it was firstly talking about how much more varied genetics were across the whole of africa than they were in anywhere else but also it was it had a sort of genetic family tree of lighter skinned and dark darker skinned people from around the world and it showed how how many different intermingling branches there were how many people who are now light skinned were from one of the dark skinned branches that then became lighter and then there were darker skinned branches that became light uh, sorry lighter skinned branches that became darker and so on and if you were trying to sort of draw a, draw a family tree of where different people around the world who were either who would be described now as people of color versus white people, there were groups of different colors who are far more genetically close than there were. Like these two black people are wildly separate genetically, whereas this this light skinned group of people and this dark skinned group of people are much closer, and and so on. Right. So uh, pigmentation is. Um broadly speaking across animals is um is a very uh uh um right you would never um define a taxonomy based on the color of a thing right you don't in other species right i mean that's a great point of course not yeah thinking about right. like a, a light-skinned spaniel and a dark a dark light-furred spaniel and a dark-furred spaniel is wildly right. more so similar than a than a pug and a spaniel of the same skin of like exactly that fur tone you know colors you know right ex these external pigmentation things change all the time right and um they are not indicative of sort of deep differences but when you do have deep differences you often get color changes uh, so they come around necessary, but, but not sufficient to prove a distinct population. Kind of. Yeah. So that, um, they're changing all the time. We don't know the genetic architecture in humans of how many genes are involved, uh, how many alleles of those genes are involved, um, the extent to which they interact with each other. We have almost no idea of what the architecture is. But there's no place you can point on the genome and say that this just accounts for melanin in the skin. Like, um, well, we know the genes for melanin, sure, but the question is how much and where, um, and we certainly have a few genes that we know are responsible for some degree of pigmentation differences. Mm -hmm. um, 
but they explain a small and they are particularly good right so the right okay you can't go and take um a bunch of very dark people and a bunch of very light people and as for their differences and get anything useful out of it um but you can do things like uh go within a population and say amongst these pasty white people some of them are slightly more swarthy um you know you can go into uh uh um africa and say okay there's quite a range of skin colors here um and when you start getting deeper and deeper within a population you can say well some of the differences we see amongst these people are i guess they're all pasty white people but they're not the same um let's get some of the pastier and some of the less pasty and um and you can start to find differences that are actually meaningful mm-hmm. uh they aren't necessarily the differences that explain uh the difference between pasty white person and uh, a person of color but um they can point you to perhaps relevant genes um they can start uh identifying pathways um and we can certainly identify several of these things and say yeah if you've got this allele of this gene um you're likely to be have 10% more uh melanocytes or um, right for whatever that's worth for whatever that's worth okay. what is what's the focus of your current research um so i'm currently uh um really into a project that says okay if you've got uh you go out and you sequence a whole bunch of people um there's a a study that got published a few years ago um now where they uh they sequenced um uh 3000 some uh white people from great britain uh they call it the uh, the uk 10k project there's uh cuz if you multiply 3000 people by two genomes per person you get something that's not 10,000 but <laughs> close enough for but close enough for purposes. science and um plus inflate it by the UK sense of superiority okay uh, yeah I thought it was gonna be a pound a dollar thing but okay yeah 3,000 of us <laughs> is worth 10,000 of your guys uh, so, so you go out and you sequence a whole bunch of people um and there are some genetic variants that you find uh, very few times, maybe even just once. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, this one person has one different base on one of their chromosomes that we've never seen in any of these other people. Uh, and I want to know what these things are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing I want to know is how long has it been in the population? Um, is this a very recent mutation that just this person has? Um, or is this something that's been around for a while but hasn't made it into a lot of other people mm-hmm. um, and that those two different ways of having a, uh, a rare allele mean that you're looking at sort of two different processes um, so something that is uh, sort of a one in six or seven thousand frequency um, that is very young um, might be a very interesting allele that does a lot of stuff. And are you saying that it's young because of its infrequency, or there's a way of telling that it's young? Right. So I'm interested in finding a way to tell if it's young or old, given its frequency. Say, we've got all of right. Most of the things you find when you do a big study like this is rare alleles. Um, right. The common stuff you've found is... Um, they're, they're just, it turns out that there's always more rare stuff than common stuff, no matter uh, how big a sample you look. The most common things you find, um, you're only going to find once or twice. But again, this is within, the, within that tiny fraction of a percent that's different, where everything else is... Right. So, um, you know, almost everything you find is at frequency zero, right? Everybody's the same, everybody's the same, everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. Um but where people are different, sometimes it's because uh, you've got something that is a common variant. Um, about half people, half the people have it, half the people don't. Or half the people have one type, half the people have another type. Um, so that's a very common variant. Um, sometimes you find very rare variants. Okay. Um, 
almost everybody in this sample, uh, it's not 10,000 large, has one type. But we found one person who has one different, right? So everybody's basically the same, except this guy has something different. And presumably there are other people out there. And how, how able are you to, how able are scientists in general now to be able to go, this allele is responsible for this thing in a human or this does this to people? Uh, we're terrible at it. Okay. Um, there's, um, you know, there's an ever-growing catalog of, yes, we think this one variant is doing this one thing. Uh, but um, by and large, right, one variant does nothing by itself, right? If you just have one nucleotide floating in a little bowl somewhere, it doesn't do anything. Um, it needs the rest of the genome um, to interact with. So one little thing by itself um, almost never does anything useful by itself. And, and you need these sort of networks or these sort of composite effects of many variants together to have any uh, impact. To, to that point, like I, I know increasingly people talk about like, uh, will we identify the gene that causes whatever? And the answer is almost always no. It's going to be a combination. It's a combination of multiple genes. But is it is it the case that multiple genes cause factor A, multiple other genes cause factor B, multiple other genes cause factor C? But there's an overlap between that group of genes. Yes, that's entirely true as well. So okay, we have right. I mean, these genes, you know, genes. Mostly, what genes do is make proteins, and proteins interact with each other um, because that's what proteins do. It's that's the bird's eye view of biology. Um, uh, genes make proteins that do things. Um, and to get from genes making proteins to having like people um, is that these one protein interacts with another protein, interacts with another protein in a long biological pathway. Um, and these pathways are um, very complicated things with cycles and loops and branches and uh, and other things of proteins interacting with other proteins um, and at some point we sort of stop talking about the proteins and we start talking about um, like a trait height or um, skin pigmentation um, but that's sort of the end result of a long chain of proteins doing stuff um, and where that stops being considered um, the action of a pathway and where it starts being like a thing that we care about is almost not a biological question but a clinical question or a um, yeah, yeah it's uh, so when you're looking at that tiny tiny infrequent thing in that 10,000 chromosome population or the UK 10k thing you have no you don't see that person and then see they have some trait that's distinct obviously you're just seeing this section of their genome is different and you you don't see any phenotype difference or something like those people or you right. haven't yet or right and so for the most part I, I don't even have any information about who these people are oh it's just, just the data all I've got is is a genome um, and even if I did right there are certainly things I would go back and look for. Um, and there's a phenomenal project that's uh, a little more recent now, um, the UK Biobank, um, which is uh, developing uh, not whole genome sequences, but um, so you can say, look, genes make proteins and proteins do things. Um, there's a lot of the genome that isn't genes. It's sort of the stuff between genes and it clearly does stuff and a lot of it's important um but by and large it's less important than the genes that are making the proteins that are doing things so um there's a uh it's and it's much cheaper to just sequence the genes than to sequence the whole genome just because there's less to do mm -hmm. um and you can use entirely different technologies just because there's a lot less of it um so the UK Biobank project um, said, well, let's uh, get the whole um, sequence of all the genes, not all the genomes, all the genes of um, tens of thousands of British people 
Um, and let's simultaneously actually ask how they're doing and who they are and collect um, sort of vital stats um, for a lot of them. Um, and this is another uh, new data set that's really rich and really interesting. But by and large, right, you say, look, this person, I mean, nope, everybody's a unique snowflake, right? But um, that's, uh, you know, it's almost nobody is unique to the point of going, what the hell's with that gap, <laughs> right? And um, and everybody's got a unique genome, and we just um, uh, did the math that, like even you know all the kids of your two parents are uh are going to be completely different genetically right there's, um, from there's each other theoretically more options between two parents than there are i probably atoms in the universe i i would believe that um so yes this one thing is a thing that is unique to this person um but the combination of all this stuff is also unique and the combinations of many subsets of these things is unique. Um, so why would it be this one thing and yeah. not these other things that are also unique to this person? Um, so it's, yeah, you don't find the this one nucleotide and say, aha, um, you, um, but it might be worth saying, well, why does this nucleotide do anything? And can we tell anything about it? Mm -hmm. um, can we tell if it's important? And, uh, you know, and to some extent, the age of an allele will tell you whether or not it's important. It doesn't necessarily tell you if it's good or bad, but it might tell you that um, it's not just hanging out. How do you age an allele? Um, well, so as you, um, as you sort of break up these mosaics that you inherit from your grandparents... Uh, the things that are attached to this allele, the other variants, right? So you, you get this big chunk from grandma, mm -hmm. right? And then there's the chunk from grandpa. And it's a fairly big chunk, right? It's a sizable portion of the chromosome that will be grandma, then grandpa, then grandma again. Uh, so all of the variation that was the grandma variation gets inherited in this big chunk. Um, and as you go sort of farther uh, down in time, sort of the chunk that got inherited from grandma gets smaller and smaller, right? Because now when you pass that on to your kid and you have, okay, there's the chunk I inherited from grandma, but I'm going to mix that now with the chunk that I inherited from my uh, grandma or grandpa from the other parent. Right. Right. So these chunks get smaller and smaller as you pass them along. So you say, well, look, I've got this one weird thing um, now. Um, I can say, well, let's look at the other variation around it. Um, is this uh, one weird thing sitting in a long chunk or a short chunk? Um, if it's, okay, all this variation is actually in a long run similar to some other guy who maybe doesn't have this variant but has all the other stuff that's attached to it, say, well... Um, this variant arose um, uh, more recently than um, the time it took for this chunk to still be fairly long. So it's got to be recent. Or if I go through and I say, well, this one variant, but like the stuff attached to it, like you very quickly don't find anybody with this pattern uh, anywhere in this set of several thousand chromosomes, you say, well, so it must have hung around for a long time getting whittled down to a very small piece. Um, so it's got to be oh. very old. And so... And therefore important? Very not... old probably means unimportant. Oh, okay. okay. So young might mean unimportant. Old means it's been hanging around for a while and it hasn't... Nothing's happened to it. Interesting. Right? It hasn't gotten to high frequency, so it's not great um and it hasn't been flushed out of the population yet so it's probably not that bad right well, so because if it doesn't mean bad just not okay i get the difference because there. if it, if it was if it was important and good then it would become higher frequency because it would increase your chance of reproducing whatever would be passed on but if it was 
old and ba- important and bad, then it would be bred out because it would decrease your chance of reproducing. Exactly. So if it's if it's old and short, then it just it generally means it didn't do much and it's just kind of yeah. stayed. Now if it's flown re- under the radar, if it's really old, um, then it's probably doing something even weirder, <laughs> right? Go on. Um, so uh, back to the immune system, right? We like having um, rare variants um, as part of our immune system. Right, um, a rare variant is something that no uh, nasty microbe has learned is gonna is gonna be even trying to mimic. Mm-hmm. Right, so um, we like to have a rare variant, and we do better if we have a rare variant. Well, if we do very better with our rare variants, and we make more copies of our rare variants, they, then they're not rare variants anymore. <laughs> they, they become common variants. Okay, um, <laughs> and if we have a common variant, and we're not doing so hot um we don't pass them on as well uh and those variants become rare um so when you have these kinds of um we call them negative frequency dependent selection and there's a couple different mechanisms you can uh uh sort of get this kind of phenomenon you get this thing where okay if i have a rare variant um i don't lose it from the population because when it's rare it's really good, right? And so it doesn't drop away. When it's common, um, it gets pushed back to being rare. So you get things <laughs> that stay rare for a very long time without Never getting... go away, never get completely common because it's just this push and pull to keep it in that rare area. Yeah, yeah. so if you find something... So um, we have sort of expectations of how old should a rare variant be if it's important... Um, it should be young. If it's not really doing anything, it can be pretty old. Um, but if it's much older than that, oh, there's something interesting going on in a very different you way. You caught it in its cycle between between commonality and, and going close to going away altogether. And, right. Yeah. And by the way, I hate to do this. Matt has a red eye to get out to New York. He's leaving for soon. I wish we could keep this going a lot longer because there's so much. This is so outside of both Matt and my wheelhouse. It's so interesting. But um, I'm curious about what, what the future holds and what you want to tell lay people who might be excited about genetic research about what's actually possible on the horizon and what might never happen. Or... Um, so, the, um, you know, to me, the, uh, some of the most interesting stuff is says, okay, we're not mostly interested in what any one variant does. Um, we're interested in uh, complex traits that have lots of causes. Um, and some of those causes will be genetic, and they will be distributed across many genes and many alleles. And some of those causes will be environmental. Um, what are you exposed to? Um, and some of those environments will be heritable and uh, passed on, not genetically. Um, when you put all these together, right, how do you build a trait? Um, how how are these traits and the differences and the variation in these traits um, actually built and and how do we understand that um, and that's really some of the most interesting uh, research areas uh, in my mind mm-hmm. and would, would do those lead to I mean I'm sure a lot of people ask you about just miracle cures for things down the road through genetics are things like that what get you excited or is it is it more about just understanding the whole picture of how we become who we are right so um, for me, it's by far the latter. Okay. Um, and I, I think that's uh, increasingly true of the people who are geneticists. Uh, and um, to a large extent, I feel like um, the people who are interested in, yeah, but what's the drug? Right, uh, how right, how right, are we right. going to fix this? Um these are people who are uh, usually less interested in the genetics, right? They're interested in something much farther down that pathway of, okay, so there's the genes and the proteins and the proteins are interacting with each other. Um, They are going to be much more interested in those proteins interacting with each other. And what's the protein interaction that caused the trouble, Mm -hmm. not what's the gene that set that pathway in motion? Because, um, okay, 
to some extent, uh, the CRISPR revolution is changing everything, and I probably don't have my mind wrapped around it well enough to address. Um, so as of 10 years ago, mm-hmm. right, look, you're not going to change your genes, um, and you're not going to change your kids' genes, um, and you might change uh, this uh, soybeans' genes, but um, for the most part, your genes are just going to be whatever you got. Yeah. Um, but treatment is going to be something else, something not genetic. Okay. Um, something that has a much more sort of proximal effect on a trait. Um, and I do think that a lot of that is, is, is very valid reasoning to say, look, if we want a miracle cure for a, um, something that we define not genetically, right? So if you've got a genetic disease, yeah, you really want to understand the genes. If you've got a disease that probably has a genetic component, we're more interested in something that's much closer to the disease than to the genetic component. That makes total sense, yeah. Um, so that's that's a different scientist than I. Okay. Uh, where can our listeners find out where, like, about you and your work, and where can they track you down? Um, I'm afraid most of my uh, output is uh, in academic journals. Um, so, uh, at your local university library. <laughs> Great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know that there's a but there. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, that's I, totally I, fine. I, that's I, completely you, you fine. Gave, you gave them an hour of your time right now to get to know your world. So uh, thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. You can find us as always, uh, probably science.com mm-hmm. at probably science. You can find us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Uh, probably science uh, on Facebook as well uh, you can find our donation thing there spread the word tweet about us Facebook about us you know all this stuff Alex thank you so much for joining us yes it was a pleasure mind blowing I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again because it's such great I know so little me. about yeah. genetic I'm not realizing but yeah thank you so much oh well you're welcome happy to be here thanks and uh, go see Matt on the road he'll be in New York this week I think you're going to miss by the time this comes out out. Uh, Glastonbury and Copenhagen there are the two places you can catch me yep and we will see you next week bye bye